Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General. Going back to our look at legendary weapons from around the world, and today we're going to be taking a look at Norse mythology. There are a lot of important and noteworthy weapons from Norse mythology, so when I was doing my research, I just chose the ones that were... I found most interesting. I might go back and revisit this on a, a future episode because there's a few other weapons that I was reading about that didn't quite have the chance to uh, go research. But like I said, who knows? Maybe I'll come back and uh, re-examine those weapons at a later time. But for now, let's jump right into today's episode. Now, there are actually a couple of weapons I'd like to talk about first that are in Dungeons and Dragons, but actually do have their roots in Norse mythology. The first is the dancing sword. Now, this weapon is loosely based on a sword that belonged to the god Frey. And according to the poem, Skirnir's Journey, uh, the uh, god Frey, he wanted to uh he wanted to win the heart of a giantess named Gerd and win her hand in marriage. So what he did is he sent one of his uh, followers, Skirnir, to go win her heart for him. And before the journey, gives him his horse as well as a sword that is said can fight by itself. Also, another noteworthy example is three items the Hammer of Thunderbolts, Gauntlets of Ogre Power, and Girdle of Giant Strength. Now, all three of these items are, by themselves, are quite powerful. But when you put them together, you can throw the hammer and you add like a crazy amount of damage to it and then the weapon comes back to your hand. So this is actually based on three items that are associated with Thor, god of thunder and protector of Midgard. First is, of course, the Thor's famous hammer, Mjolnir, which is what the hammer of thunderbolts is based on. The gauntlets of ogre power, those are likely based on his gauntlets, Garngrepnir, and the name means iron grippers. Now, it was said that he needed these gauntlets to handle his hammer because Mjolnir's handle was actually quite short. And it was said that this is because when the dwarves were making it, a fly bit one of the dwarves in the eye, which caused him to make that mistake. And according to some interpretations, that fly was actually Loki in disguise. Finally, the girdle of giant strength is probably based on the belt Mengingnord, which means power belt. And it was said that wearing this belt would double Thor's strength. Now also, I want to put the mispronunciation disclaimer out there. I consider myself to be one of those people who knows more about Norse mythology than the average person. I don't consider myself an expert, but... I know a, a fair amount about that particular subject. 
However, there are some pronunciations where I'm not really sure how to correctly pronounce them. So if you know the correct pronunciation and you notice that I totally slaughter the pronunciation, I apologize. Now, before we get into the weapons, I'd like to tell you a little bit about Norse mythology and some of our sources that we get this information from. Probably the two most important sources of Norse mythology are the Eddas. And there's the Poetic Edda, which is sometimes also called the Elder Edda, and the Prose Edda, sometimes called the Younger Edda. Now, the Prose Edda was written in the 13th century by an Icelandic poet named Snorri Stuljersson. Now, he utilized a practice called Ephirarism and talked a little bit about this when I was uh, discussing some of the legendary weapons of Ireland. Now, this is a practice where, or maybe not necessarily a practice, or a, but a theory of mythological interpretation where you assume that mythology and legends are based on historical events or historical people. It's just that over time, things change. As, the, as we get further and further from the actual event, details change. And maybe a great hero becomes a god. And the ancient enemy, whether it's a, a king or another warrior that this hero fights, maybe they get turned into a giant or a dragon or some other monster. And that's the approach that Snorri used when he was writing the Prose Edda. And we should actually thank him for that because if he didn't take this approach, it's quite possible that some of this knowledge may have actually been lost. And again, we can go back to the episode on Ireland where when you had these Irish monks, they were writing about these pagan heroes and gods they needed to do so in a way that would not contradict their their Christian faith. So that's also the approach that Snorri took. Again, he stressed that he thought these were just stories and tales. Well, though not real, they were still worth learning. He believed that the Norse gods were actually survivors of the Trojan War who made their way north. And because of their superior weapons, armor, and culture, the indigenous people of the north came to worship them as gods. The Prose Edda is divided into three sections. The first is called Galfinganing, which is translated as the deluding of Gilfi. This is a story about a king named Gilfi who finds himself in a palace and there he encounters three figures, high, just as high, and third. These three people are believed to be different aspects of the god Odin. He is challenged to ask questions, which high, just as high, and third answer. Now this section covers some of the major mythological events we see in the Norse epics. We learn about the creation, some information about the various gods and goddesses, and Ragnarok, 
Now, Snorri draws upon material here that is known from the poetic Edda. But as far as I could tell from my research, it's not known if Snorri actually had access to the poems themselves, as as in that they were written down, or if these were just poems that he heard and you know happened to uh, remember and include those in his works. Some of the other events we learn about in this section include Tyr binding the Fenris wolf, the wooing of Gerd, the murder of Balder, and Thor's journey to the court of the giant Utgardalok. The second section is called Skaldskarpmal, which means the language of poetry. It is a dialogue between the god of the sea, Aegir, and the god of poetry, Bragi. This section tells the origin of various Norse kennings through the various tales that inspired them. It also retells several of the other tales, including things like Thazi kidnapping Iduna and the story of the origin of the Mead of Inspiration. The third section is called Hatatal, which means the account of meters. So this covers some of the different meters and uh, styles that were used in Norse poetry. Now, I seem to recall this is also the section of the book where there was a list of kennings as well. Because the translation of the poetic Edda, or I'm sorry, the translation, the translation of the prose Edda that I own doesn't include a count of meters. It only includes the language of poetry and the diluting of Gilfi. Now, when I was in college and I was doing an independent study project on Norse religion, I do recall uh, finding a copy of the prose Edda at the library of the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh. And that's, I did remember, had all three sections. And before we continue, if you'd like to learn a little bit more about some of my research into Norse poetry, if you go to Point of Insanity Game Studio Store on drivethroughstuff.com, you will see that I've got a product there called Yggdrasil. And this was actually a project I did for a class called chapbook design where we had to uh, where basically we had to make a chapbook which is a cheaply produced book and it could include anything we wanted poems songs stories and the one I did was uh, called Yggdrasil where I basically did my own retelling of the some of the major stories in Norse mythology so uh, go check it out if it's if you're interested. It's pay what you want. So if you want to download it for free, you're more than welcome to. If you want to throw me a, a buck or two because maybe you really enjoyed it, I certainly appreciate that. And I do talk a little bit about my research in that one as well as I have a list of uh, some of the kennings that I remember reading about as well. Well, next is the Poetic Edda. Now, the author, or likely authors, of the Poetic Edda is unknown. It's a collection of poems that were believed to have been written down probably between 800 to 1100 AD. 
but we didn't actually know about these poems or these these works until 1643 when a manuscript called the Codex, Codex Regis uh, popped up in the hands of a Lutheran bishop who presented it as a gift to the king of Denmark. Now, I wasn't able to find the story about how this book came into possession of this bishop, but it's interesting that he did recognize the importance of it because it was believed that these poems that Snorri had quoted were lost. So, like I said, it's very uh, fortunate that not only did it turn up, but that someone recognized the importance so it could be preserved. Well, I mentioned kennings. What are kennings? Well, a kenning is a Norse poetic device. And what it is, it's a way to describe something without directly naming it. Now, in the case of weapons, there's lots of colorful ways to describe weapons. A sword, for example, might be called a blood snake, a wound wand, a wand of battle, or Odin's fire. Arrows are usually described in terms of insects or precipitation. They might be called wound bees or hail of the bow. An axe might be called a wood splitter or foe of the forest. A spear might be called a flying dragon of battle. So there's lots of ways we can put these kennings together. So instead of saying a sword in the hand, you might say something like, a blood snake in the earth of weapons, a wound wand springing from the battle tree's branch, or a battlefish perched in the hawk's talon. We'll take a look at some weapons from Norse mythology right after this quick announcement. Hey, this is Nick and Alex, and we're here to tell you a little bit more about Dungeon Junkies. Now, we're a podcast that's based in Austin, Texas, and we are hell-bent on making you laugh. Absolutely. We have some fantastic storytelling uh, with some badass characters and even better music, as well as a ton of jokes to make you laugh. So join Fenworth, Taryn, and Dr. Euphoria, and our sexy DM, Kenny, on a quest to save the world or destroy it. I guess whichever one comes first. (laughs) And you can also check out our Real Talk episodes where we get meta inside our campaign and really figure out the depths of our characters and also the story. So check us out on www.dungeonjunkies.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Dungeon Junkies, because not all adventurers are meant to be heroes. And we're back. So the first item I'd like to talk about is called the Gambatine, which translates something to the effect of magic wand. Now, I mentioned Skinner before. Again, he plays an important role in the story of uh, the wooing of Gerd. And he actually used this item, and it does appear in various uh, other poems as well. So it's not actually a unique item. Essentially, what uh, Gambantian is, it's a wand that you use to force someone to bend to your will. So I'm going to read a section from that poem I was referring to, Skinnier's Journey. And pop quiz, what translation 
of the poetic edda do I use? If you guessed the Carolyn Larrington translation by Oxford University Press, congratulations. You have probably been listening to far too many of my podcasts. So in this poem, Skinner uh, goes to ask Gerd if she will accept Frey's hand in marriage. Well, first he tries threatening her with a sword, but she refuses. So then he uses the wand, and it goes like this. I strike you with a taming wand, and I will tame you, girl, to my desires. There you shall go where the sons of men shall never see you again. On an eagle's mound you shall sit from early morning, looking out unto the world, hankering towards hell. Food shall be more hateful to you than every man is the shining serpent among men. May you become a spectacle when you come out. May Rimnir glare at you and everything stare at you. May you become more widely known than the watchmen of the gods. May you gape through the bars. Madness and howling, tearing affliction and unbearable desire. May tears grow for you with grief. Sit down, for I should tell you a heavy torment and a double grief. Fiends will oppress you all the long weary day in the courts of giants. To the halls of the frost giants every day you shall creep without choice, without hope of choice. Weeping in exchange for joy you shall have and suffer grief with tears. With a three-headed giant you shall miserably linger out your life, or else be without a man. May your mind be seized. May pining waste you away. Be like the thistle, that which is crushed at the end of the harvest. I went to the forest, to the living wood, to get a potent branch. A potent branch I got. Odin is angry with you. Thor is angry with, with you. Freyr will hate you. Most wicked girl, you have brought down upon you the potent wrath of the gods. Hear, O ogres. Hear, O frost giants. Sons of Suteg, the troops of the Aesir themselves, how I forbid, how I deny, pleasure in men to the girl, benefit from men to the girl. Hergrimnir is the name of the giant who will have you down below the corpse gates, where bondsmen will give you the roots of the wood, goat's piss to drink. Finer drink you will not get, girl, at your desire, girl, at my desire. Giant, I carve on you three runes, lewdness and frenzy and unbearable desire. Thus I can rub that off as I carved that on, if there is need of this. And to which this, Gerd replies, Be welcome now, lad, and receive the crystal cup full of ancient mead, though I had never thought I should ever love one of the Vanir well. So, again, that's how the... Uh, that story turns out, and so how you might translate this into D&D, I would use this as a magic wand that anyone can use, even if they're not specifically a magic user, as long as you know the correct rune poems to recite. So I would allow it to do something like, well, maybe not necessarily like a charm person uh, or command or something like that, but as something that you can use to force, 
well, maybe not necessarily force someone to do what you want, but maybe get them to see things from your point of view and thus assist you. Now, I know some people have analyzed this myth and, okay, what it could mean. And one of the interpretations of this story is that it's representing of spring thawing winter, if that makes any sense. But let's move on to some swords. Now, there's a common theme in many tales of Norse swords. A lot of times they're often said to be unbreakable. So this is why I'm giving them a a fairly substantial magical bonus. Also, it should be mentioned that in Norse mythology, anything that's important probably has a proper name. And this, I believe, stems from a, a practice or a belief that when you give something a name, you bestow a weird or a fate on it, or you install some sort of power upon that particular item. Now, let's uh, talk a little bit about what exactly that term weird, which is spelled W-Y-R-D, what that means. Now, the Norsemen were believers in fate. Now, this doesn't mean that they thought that everything was, you know, determined by the Norns, Everything was up to fate and you had no free will. It, it wasn't quite like that. But they did believe that certain things would happen regardless of your attempts to prevent them. A good example, if you've ever seen the movie The 13th Warrior with Antonio Banderas, uh, there's a scene where they're getting ready to fight the Wendell and they are, you know, they're camping out in this, uh, you know, this hall. And uh, the character that Antonio Banderas is playing is, I guess he's like questioning what they were doing. It's like, why are you sleeping? And one of his companions says that, you know, I forgot exactly how he, he phrased it because it's been a while since I've seen that movie. But it's something to the effect of, you know, go, go dig a hole if you'd like. You won't and hide in it. You won't live one second longer. And another story that I heard many, many years ago that I think perfectly illustrates this idea of weird or fate, uh, there's a story I was told about a warrior, and I apologize, I cannot remember uh, the, the name. This I heard this story almost 20 years ago, so like I said, it's been a while. But the story goes that there was this war, Viking warrior, and he was told that his horse's head would be the death of him. So he cut off his horse's head and then buried it uh, by the by the ocean. Well, the warrior goes on and he lives this long uh, life of adventuring and raiding and doing other things Vikings do. And one day he returns to the place where he buried his horse's head and he sees the skull of his horse there because it, you know, the ground has been eroded away. And he goes, how is it that you are to be the death of me? And he kicks the horse's skull. Well, as it turns out, there was a poisonous snake that was sleeping underneath the the skull. And when he kicked it away, the snake woke up, was quite angry and startled and bit the warrior, killing him with its poison. 
And we can also find parallels to this in various other myths. A good example that comes to mind would be the Greek legend of Perseus, where uh, the reason Perseus and his mother were put into a box and cast out into the ocean is because his grandfather was told that his daughter would have a son that would kill him. Well, of course, Perseus, he doesn't die in the sea. He goes on and becomes this great hero. And then, at least according to the legends I'm familiar with, he was participating in a sporting event. Again, this was after he rescued Andromeda and defeated Medusa and did all his hero stuff. He was participating in this Olympic event and he threw a discus, which ended up going into the audience and killing a spectator, which was his grandfather. Okay, I got a little bit off track there, but like I said, I really enjoy Norse mythology. It's a subject that I'm passionate about, and I consider myself somewhat knowledgeable in, so I apologize about uh, getting off track there, but let's talk about some swords now, shall we? So the first sword I'd like to talk about is Tearfing, and this is a sword that occasionally appears in video games. Probably the one that I'm most familiar with is from Castlevania Symphony of the Night. There's a series of poems that feature this weapon that are called the Tearfing Cycle. Now, the sword was made for a king named Svalami. He had forced two dwarves named Durin and Davlin to make the sword. The sword was said to be very beautiful with a golden hilt, and the dwarves told him that it would never miss a stroke. It would never rust, and it could cut through stone and iron as easily as cloth. However, the dwarves, they were quite angry that they were forced to make this sword, so they also put a curse on it. And it was said that whenever the sword was drawn, it had to take a life, and that it would eventually cause three great evils. So the king used this sword in battle against a berserker named Argrim. Now, Tyrfing did cut through the berserker's shield, but then got stuck in the ground. Argrim used this as an opportunity to sever the king's hand, kill him, and then forced the king's daughter to marry him. Argrim then passed the sword on to his son, Angantyr, who would also die in battle. He was buried with the sword alongside his 11 brothers. However, the sword was later unearthed by Agantir's daughter, Hervor. She demanded her father give him her the sword, but he warned her that it would cause the downfall of their clan. Hervor would then disguise herself as a man and go on her own series of adventures before settling down and having two sons named Angantir, and Hydric. The sword passed on to Hydric, who used it to slay his brother. He only wanted to have a look at his sword. Perhaps he was ignorant of its the curse, but he unsheathed it, and because of that was forced to kill his brother. Well, Hydric would go on to lead an army and eventually become king of the Goths. Eventually, it was taken from him while he slept, and it was used to kill him. And it was said this would end the curse on the sword. How might we stat this out for D&D? I would make it a plus five weapon, 
And it would, of course, be immune to the touch of a rust monster or other similar effects, as, again, according to the legend, it was said it would never rust. But I would say that you have to keep this curse in mind whenever the person uses the sword. When drawn, it must be used to kill someone before it can be put back in its sheath. So, of course, if there's lots of enemies around, that might not be a big deal. But if there aren't any enemies, then I would say the user should have to enter a Berserker Rage where he would kill, he would attack everything in sight until he finally claimed the life. So again, we must never forget the dark nature of the sword if you decide to use it in a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. The next sword is called Dainsleaf, which means Dane's Legacy. It belonged to a king named Hogni. And as described in the prose Eddas, Thou hast made this offer over late. If thou wouldest make peace, for now I have drawn Dainsleaf, which the dwarves made, and must cause a man's death every time it is bared, nor ever fails in its stroke. Moreover, the wound heals not if one is scratched with it. So again, we're going to see this sword being similar to Tearfing in that whenever it's drawn, someone has to die. Also, a wound from this sword is said to never heal. So I would say how we could stat this out is when any damage caused by this sword cannot heal either naturally or through magic until the victim is the recipient of a, rem- a removed curse or a powerful spell like a, a lesser wish or a, a full wish. As far as the numeric bonus, I would probably give this one a plus three. Uh, again, seems to be similar to Tearfing, but not quite as powerful. The next sword is Gram. And the name of this sword usually is translated to either Wrath or Enemy. Now, there's a couple different origins for this sword, so it really depends on which sources you're consulting. Now, the story of the sword I'm most familiar with is that during a wedding feast, Odin, disguised as a beggar, thrust the sword into a tree called Branstock and said whoever drew it could have it, and he would find that it was the best sword he ever used. Many tried, but it was eventually drawn by a man named Sigmund. The king at this feast, King Sigir, wanted the sword for himself and offered to buy it for three times its weight in gold, but Sigmund refused. Now this made Sigir angry, so he plotted against Sigmund. Odin caused the sword to break during Sigmund's last battle, causing him to be defeated. However, Sigmund's wife, Borghild, kept the broken sword, and sometime later she would give birth to Sigmund's son, Sigurd. Sigurd was said to be strong, handsome, and intelligent. He was tutored by a dwarven smith named Regan, who told him about a dragon named Fafnir who guarded a large treasure. Now, Fafnir was actually Regan's brother, and because of a dispute, uh, he had felt that his brother had cheated him out of some gold. Regan hoped to use Sigurd to his own ends, in this case, to kill Fafnir. Now, again, depending on the story that you consult, 
Some versions of the story say that Regan uh, was the one who made Graham. Others say that he just reforged it. And Sigurd tested it by slicing an anvil in half. We learn about it in a poem called The Lay of Fafnir. Sigurd and Regan went unto Ganeda Hearth, and there they found Fafnir's tracks, where he crawled down to the water. Then Sigurd dug a great pit in the path, and he got into it. And when Fafnir crawled away from the gold, he snorted out poison, and it fell down onto Sigurd's head. And when Fafnir crawled over the pit, Sigurd stabbed him in the heart with his sword. Fafnir shook himself and flailed with his head and tail. Sigurd jumped out of the pit and both looked at one another. Fafnir said, A boy, just a boy. Of whom were you born, boy? Whose son are you, that you should redden your shining sword on Fafnir? The blade stands in my heart. Sigurd concealed his name, because it was an old superstition to believe that the words of a dying man had great power if he cursed his enemy by name. He said, Preeminent beast I'm called, and I go about as a motherless boy. I have no father, as sons of men's do. I always go alone. Fafnir said, Do you know, if you had no father, as the sons of men do, of what wonder were you born? Sigurd said, My lineage, I think, will be unknown to you, as am I myself. Sigurd I am called, Sigmund was my father, I who've killed you with my weapons. Fafnir said, Who egged you on? Why were you urged to attack my life? Shining-eyed boy, you had a fierce father, innate qualities show quickly. Sigurd said, My courage wedded me, my hands assisted me, and my sharp sword. Few are brave when they become old, if they are cowardly in childhood. Fafnir said, I know if you did succeed in growing up in the bosom of your friends, you would be seen to fight furiously. But now you are a captive, a prisoner of war. They say the bound man is always trembling. Sigurd said, You taunt me now, Fafnir, because I am far away from my father's inheritance. But I'm no captive, though I was taken prisoner, you found I'm a free agent. Fafnir said, Spiteful words you think you hear in everything, but I'll tell you one thing true, the resounding gold and the glowing red treasure, those rings will be your death. Sigurd said, Power over his property every man shall have, always until his last day comes, for on the day only shall every man depart from here to hell. Fafnir said, The judgment of the Norns you'll get in sight of land, and the fate of a fool. You'll drown in the water even if you row in a breeze. All fate is dangerous for the doomed man. Sigurd said, Tell me, Fafnir, you are said to be wise, and to know a great deal. Which are those Norns who go to those in need, and choose mothers over children in childbirth? Fafnir said, from very different tribes I think the Norns come. They are not all of the same kin. Some are of the Aesir, some are the Elves, some are the daughters of Davlin. Sigurd said, tell me, Fafnir, you are said to be wise and to know a great deal. What is the island called where Surt and the Aesir together will mingle sword liquid together? 
Fafnir said, Mismade it's called, and there all the gods shall sport with their spears. Bilrost will break as they journey away, and their horses will flounder in the great river. The helm of terror I wore among the sons of men, while I lay upon the necklaces. More powerful than I thought myself to be, I didn't encounter many foes. Sigurd said, The helm of terror protects no one where angry men have to fight. A man finds out when he comes among the multitude that no one is bravest of all. Fafnir said, Poison I snorted when I lay upon the mighty inheritance of my father. Sigurd said, Mighty dragon, you snorted great blasts, and you hardened your heart. Men are the more ferocious when they have the helmet. Fafnir said, Now I advise you, Sigurd, and you take the advice and ride home from here. The resounding gold, the glowing red treasure, those rings will be your death. Sigurd said, You have given your advice, but I shall ride to where the gold lies in the heather, and you, Fafnir, lie in mortal fragments, there where hell can take you. Fafnir said, Regan betrayed me, he'll betray you, he'll be the death of us both. I think Fafnir must give up his life, you had the greater strength. Regan had disappeared while Sigurd was killing Fafnir, and came back as Sigurd was wiping off the blood of his sword. Regan said, Hail to you, Sigurd! Now you've won the victory, and you have brought down Fafnir. Of those men who tread upon the earth, I say you've been raised the least cowardly. Sigurd said, There's no knowing for certain, when all are come together, all the sons of the glorious gods, who has been brought up the least cowardly. Many a man is bold when he does not redden his sword in another's breast. Regan said, You're cheerful now, Sigurd, and pleased with your winnings, as you dry Graham upon the grass. My brother you've wounded, yet, in part, I myself brought it about. Sigurd said, You arranged that I had to ride here over the sacred mountains, his treasure and his life the shining dragon would still possess if you hadn't challenged my courage. Then Regan went to Fafnir and cut out his heart with a sword called Rigdil, and then drank blood from his wound. Regan said, Sit down now, Sigurd, and I'll go to sleep. Roast Fafnir's heart in the flame. That heart I'll have to eat after the drink of blood. Sigurd said, You went far off. While in Fafnir I was reddening my sharp sword, my strength I needed against the dragon's might while you lurked in the heather. Regan said, Long you'd have left the old giant lurking in the heather if you had not used the sword which I made myself, that sharp blade of yours. Sigurd said, Courage is better than the power of a sword, where angry men have to fight. For I've seen a brave man fighting strongly, conquer with a blunt sword. Bravery is better than cowardice, to have in battle sport. Cheerfulness is better than sniveling, whatever may be at hand. I don't know, those last two verses, those are some of my favorite verses from the uh, Poetic Edda. But anyways, so to con so then the, the way this particular poem ends, well, Regan is sleeping, uh, Sigurd's roasting Fafnir's heart, and when he... 
when he was trying to test if it was done, he prodded it with his finger and it burnt him. So he stuck it in his mouth. And when he tasted the blood, it allowed him to understand the speech of birds. And there were some birds that were sitting in uh, one of the verses I like. Uh, one of them says, shorter by a head, he should leave that frost cold giant and make him lose those rings. So then uh, Sigurd takes this advice. He kills Regan and he gets the treasure. And then he his story continues and you know he meets a, a Valkyrie named uh, Brunhild who was surrounded by a wall of fire. Unfortunately, he would meet a violent end as well, though I don't think it's necessary to give Graham a curse like Tearfing or Danesleaf. I would probably just make it a sort of dragon slain. Uh, now, one thing that's interesting, though, is even though Fafnir took the form of a dragon, sometimes he's described as a dwarf, sometimes he's described as a giant. So... I would say even maybe give it the uh, a bonus against shapeshifters as well. The next sword I'd like to talk about is Legbiter. It's the sword of Magnus III of Norway. He ruled from 1093 to 1193. His reign was marked by a period of military campaigns, several of them in the British Isles. As described by Snorri, King Magnus had a helmet on his head, a red shield in which was inlaid a gilded lion and was girt with the sword of Legbit, of which the hilt was of tooth, which is ivory, and hand grip wound about with gold thread. And the sword was extremely sharp. In his hand, he had a short spear and a red silk short cloak over his coat on which both before and behind, was embroidered with a lion in yellow silk, and all men acknowledged that they never seen a brisker, statelier man. Now, according to some records of this king, it was said that he had a tendency to charge into battle, even to the point of carelessness. And when questioned why, he replied to his men, Kings are made for honor, not for long life. He was also the last Norwegian king to die in battle in a foreign land. He was leading his army in Ireland when they were ambushed. According to records, he suffered spear wounds to both his legs and was eventually killed by an axe wound to the neck. So as far as how we would stat out leg biter, I would make it a plus three weapon. And on a critical hit, I would rule that the attacker has struck the opponent's leg reducing his speed and removing any armor class bonuses based on dexterity. Now, I should also note that this is just my interpretation of the name. It's not anything based on legend because other than it being a very sharp sword, I really couldn't find much information as to whether Legbiter was said to have had any powers attributed to it. I thought I read somewhere that it also made the user recognizable, but when I was going back, I couldn't find where I read that, so it might also give a uh, penalty to any sort of disguise checks or to any skill checks if you're trying to remain incognito. Well, finally, the last sword I'd like to talk about is Skofnug, and this was a legendary sword of the Danish king Rolof Kraki. 
It is referred to as the best of all swords carried in northern lands. Like many of the swords of Norse mythology, it was said to be exceptionally sharp and almost unbreakable. It was also said to be imbued with the spirits of the king's twelve faithful berserker bodyguards. It's said a cut made by this sword will not heal, and the only way to heal the wound is to touch a cut with a special stone. Now, there were also a couple other superstitions. It was said the sun must never shine on its hilt, and it must not be drawn in the presence of a woman. I wasn't able to find anything else about those superstitions, you know, so I'm not exactly sure what they meant. Again, I would give it a pretty good bonus, probably a plus five or whatever the highest possible bonus is, since it was said to be the best sword. I would give it properties similar to a sort of wounding, because again, as we know from the legends, it said that anyone cut by the sword, that wound would not heal. Now, since it was believed to be imbued with the spirits of the king's berserker bodyguards, I would also give it the abilities of a, an iron horn of Valhalla. So, I would say maybe once a week, it could summon 1d4 plus 1 5th level fighters. I was thinking once a day, but that might almost be a little too powerful. But I still think it should have that that those properties of the Horn of Valhalla. Now, I was reading the description of the Horn of Valhalla, and some of them are aligned to a specific alignment. In the case of this sword, I wouldn't really make it have an alignment. I really didn't read as much into the legends about King Kraki to determine if he would be of a specific alignment or not. So, probably just make it simple. Keep it as an unaligned Horn of Valhalla. And I would also recommend using that limit of 1d4 plus 1 because, well, summoning a group of 12 berserker fighters, that would be a little little overpowered in my opinion. Well, that wraps up this episode. Like I said, there were there's of course many other legendary weapons from Norse mythology and who knows, maybe we'll come back and explore those weapons on another show. But for now, I'd like to thank you for listening and have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook. And follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.